0: Hey, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. Again, thank you guys so much for joining us. I know it's Labor Day weekend, and a lot of people are traveling, have vacation plans. So, uh, man, we're just so excited that you guys are here with us. And if you're joining us online, if you're traveling or you couldn't make it today, we're glad you guys are here with us, too. So we are continuing our series in Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 today. If you have a Bible, I want to start making your way there, Mark chapter 2. And listen, if you need a Bible, you don't have one with you today, there's some on the tables in the back of the room, and those are free for you. So if you need one, if you'd like a hard copy Bible, just go back there and grab one, and that's our gift to you today. All right, who's ever heard the phrase that money rules the world? I think it's kind of of a common phrase, kind of thing that we hear. Now, I think it's in very real ways that there's a lot of truth to that statement, right? I'm not talking about, like, godly things, right? God rules the world, but, like, when we talk about earthly things and human beings, right, money has... A lot of power and influence uh, over the day-to-day activities in our life. But I think there's something else that kind of ranks right up there in terms of money. Something that you need if you're gonna wield your money and have power influence and that's your reputation. The reputation is just the beliefs or opinions of a person or a group of people about someone else or, or another organization. See someone can have Money and have some power that goes along with that money, but if you have a bad reputation, or if you lose your reputation, that can really have an effect on the power or the authority that you may or may not have. So reputation is a huge deal in America, right? For businesses and corporations, you know, because we don't want to do business with business with someone who has a bad reputation, because then that reputation then in turn imprints on us as well. Now, I think in more recent years, we've seen kind of reputation shifting, and now we have this idea of branding, right, where you have these brands, and they're linked to the company's reputation, but we even have brands for ourselves, right? People have brands on social media, and they're trying to sell themselves and sell their brands, and they'll do anything to protect their brand, to protect their reputation. But I think reputation goes beyond businesses, corporations, or social media brands, because we all have a reputation good or bad we all have a reputation with the people that we have relationships with and our reputations can affect our lives greatly each and every day so if you have a reputation of being a liar whether that may be true or not people aren't gonna put a lot of stock into the things you say but maybe you have a reputation of being a good listener so people always want to come to talk and talk to you because they know that you're a good listener now, there's countless ways that our reputations can affect our day-to-day life. You know, in my previous job, reputation was a really, really big deal. And from day one, going into that community, we were told that you're always being watched, you're always being assessed, and that your reputation will follow you. And it really did. Anytime a guy within that community was changing teams within the organization, the team would first dig deep into this guy's background and see what his reputation was played a huge part in our careers, and almost as much as performance was our reputation. Because if your reputation was bad, you might not even get a chance to perform because your reputation preceded you. I think in some ways, reputation seems like a kind of like a modern construct, right? Especially this idea of branding and individuals having like reputations that they're like selling themselves online, but really what we see is that reputation's probably been around as long as human beings have been around. And we can see this in the stories of the Old and New Testament, right? We see men like Abraham, who had a reputation of being a great man of faith. We see King David, who had a reputation of being a man after God's own heart. These guys had great reputations most of the time, but they also had some really bad reps too, because they both made poor decisions throughout their life that caused them to have bad reputations from time to time. What we're going to see in our text today in Mark chapter 2 is another group of people who have a bad reputation. In fact, their reputation is so bad that they're on the outside of the community. They're on the fringes of the community. What we see in our text is that how Jesus engages with these outsiders and he reveals the purpose of the true king. And here's the the truth that I hope you guys can take away from the text today, is that to God, we're all outsiders. We all have a bad reputation. But Jesus Christ comes into the midst of sinners to freely offer his saving grace, to impart his reputation on us. As we look at the text today, I hope that you see amongst all the amazing things that Christ did, the healings the preaching, the teaching, raising people from the dead, all amazing things. But the true purpose of the king was and is to rescue those who cannot save themselves. All right, so let's jump into the text. In Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth and said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. All right, so we're picking up in Mark where we left off last week. We see Jesus continuing his ministry in the region of Galilee, specifically in and around the city of Capernaum. Now, Galilee, this is what we would consider today like northern Israel, and Capernaum was a major city in northern Israel. Uh, just kind of like a port of entry that people would come through, Romans, uh, Jews that would come through, and this was like a major trading port for this region. We begin to see this pattern early in Jesus' ministry where he'll be in the cities, in Capernaum, teaching, preaching, but then at some point he kind of escapes, gets away from the crowds, and goes out into the wilderness or goes out by the sea. Oftentimes to be alone, to spend time with God, in prayer. Sometimes he'll take some of his disciples with him. But then we see the pattern kind of repeating itself because the crowds want him, so then the crowds follow Jesus out to the wilderness, and eventually he'll start preaching and teaching again, or he would make his way back to the city to preach and teach again. And that's what we see here in the story, that Jesus was out by the sea, the crowds were coming to him, and at some point he's making his way back into Capernaum. And he comes across this guy, Levi, sitting at a toll booth, and in a similar situation to what we saw in chapter one a few weeks ago, when we saw Simon, Andrew, James, and John, and Jesus telling them, follow me. Well, let's pause for a second and ask, ask the question, that, right, who's this Levi guy? Why is he important? Because if you look throughout the New Testament, you're not going to see this name a lot. You're not going to see Levi. In fact, the only other instance that we see Levi or this Levi that's talked about here is in the Gospel of Luke. But outside of that, we don't see this character mentioned again. But what we do know is that in Matthew, that we see this same story being told about Jesus coming to the toll booth and calling somebody to follow him. But in that story, the man is called Matthew. Now, Matthew we do see him throughout the New Testament. We understand that Matthew is one of the 12 apostles that Christ called. What we find here with this Levi guy and what most historians and the early church fathers believe is that these two men are in fact the same person, that Levi is Matthew. And similar to what happened to Peter when Jesus, or Jesus called Simon and eventually changed his name to Peter, that he probably did something similar to Levi as well, changing his name to Matthew. All right. All right. That's who Levi is. He's the Apostle Matthew, okay? So Levi, sitting at the toll booth as Jesus is walking into town, Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. Now, Brandon did a great job a few weeks ago of unpacking this call to follow Jesus. When we saw that Simon and that crew of fishermen answer that call to follow Jesus, so I don't wanna to focus too much on this call again to follow Jesus, but what I do wanna take some time to unpack here is who he is calling. Because there's a big difference between who he is calling today in and, and chapter two compared to who he called in chapter one. You see, Peter and his crew of fishermen were just probably average blue collar workers, nothing particularly good or bad about them, They were Jews, had a basic understanding of scripture, but they weren't scholars, they weren't priests, they weren't anything special when Jesus called them. They were just guys, they were fishermen, they were workers. Not Levi though, Levi's different, totally different in fact. See in the context of the culture, Levi was a bad guy. He had a bad reputation. In fact, he would have been lumped in with the worst of the worst. Levi would have been lumped in with murderers, thieves, fornicators, any bad guy you can think of in the first century, Levi probably would have been lumped in with this group. But why? Like, what's so wrong with Levi that he's looked at so poorly? Why is his reputation so bad? Well, it's all because of his occupation that his reputation is so bad. And we see in verse 14, it gives us a glimpse into that because it says Levi is sitting at the toll booth. Levi is a tax collector. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right, today in our modern culture. I mean, I know sometimes people have run-ins with IRS agents, and it's not always friendly, but to think of IRS agents as like murderers or thieves, we don't quite look at it that way. But in the first century context, tax collectors were bad guys with bad reputations. First off, they were seen as traitors because they were serving the Roman occupiers. But it wasn't just that they were traitors serving Rome that they were bad guys, they were bad guys because they extorted people. They extorted people for their own personal gain. See, if the authorities told Levi to collect one dollar from every person who comes by his toll booth, there was nothing stopping Levi from collecting two dollars and pocketing the rest. See, these tax collectors in first century Palestine operated in a type of, like, mafioso type of way where they're strong-arming people and extorting people. They were bad guys. They were hated in the community. Especially for a Jew to be doing this, that was it. They were done. They were ostracized from everybody. I love how Dr. Danny Aiken describes Levi, he, he describes him this way. He says, with money as his God, Levi was a social pariah who was spiritually bankrupt, having sold his soul to sin and self. So Jesus calling this guy was a big deal, right? It was different than those call, the calling of those fishermen. Calling Levi was a big deal. John MacArthur calls this the scandal of grace because it was scandalous at this time. You know, Jesus said and did a lot of things that offended a lot of people when he walked this earth. But I'd have to guess that this was probably near the top for a lot of Jews, the calling of a tax collector to be one of his disciples. Now, this is good news. This is good news for for me and for you, and here's why. It's because there is not a spiritual or moral standard that we have to meet in order to follow Jesus. Jesus. There's no standard that we have to meet to be a follower of Christ. There are not any boxes to check, prayers to say, Bible verses to memorize. Our response to Jesus is not, let me work on myself and then I'll come follow you. No, our response to Jesus is, I'm going to answer the call to follow you so that he can equip me to be spiritually and morally better. And that's the struggle and hang up for so many when it comes to Jesus, because we get things backwards. We get our wires crossed thinking that we need to change first to follow him. That we need to change, but when we can't, when we don't, when we won't, then we think we can't follow him. We don't think we're worthy enough to follow Jesus. But just like his call to Peter, to Levi, to Judas, who would betray him, His call to you and to me and to countless others, he's calling us to follow him first so that he can change us. Now, if you were here last week, um, we're passing out a free book in the lobbies, one of our just gifts for you for our five year anniversary. So, the book in the lobby is called Gentle and Lowly. It's a book all about the heart of Jesus. So if you didn't get one last week, there's still a table full of them out there. I, we would love for you to grab one today, take it home, read it. It's an amazing read. What I want to share with you from chapter 1 in Gentle and Lowly. In chapter 1 it says, For all his, all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. No prerequisites no boxes to check, no prayers to say, no things that you have to do to come to Jesus. He's calling us to follow him. Now, this was a big deal for Levi, right? This was life changing for Levi. This tax collector who's on the outside is now being called to be a part of a group. So the logical thing for Levi to do is to throw a party, right? He's happy, he's gonna throw a party. So let's pick it up in verse 15. It says, While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Levi, was, he was happy. He was excited for this sudden change in his life, and he wanted to honor the rabbi who called him by throwing him a dinner. But if we're honest, right, Levi probably wants to show him off a little bit too. Like, look who I get to be with now, right? I'm no longer on the outside. I'm with this crew now. He's, he's probably showing Jesus off to his neighbors and his friends. So he has a dinner party. So, If you're like Levi and you're a tax collector or you're a sinner and you're on the outside, who do you invite to your dinner party with Jesus? Well, if you're an outcast, you're gonna invite other outcasts because those are probably the only people who are gonna come to your house. And that's that's the picture we get here in Mark, that Jesus is dining and socializing with a group of outcasts, tax collectors and sinners. Now, we know who the tax collectors are, right? We know what they do. We know why they're bad guys. But what about these other sinners who are eating with Jesus? Well, the text doesn't go into detail and tell us why they're sinners or what they're doing. They could be bad guys like Levi. They could be murderers. They could be the worst. And I think our mind often goes there, like these are guys, like really bad guys. But more likely than not, these were just Common people who weren't living up to the religious standards of the day. They weren't living up to the strict standards that had been set by the groups like the Pharisees, so they were labeled sinners and labeled outcasts. All right, so we know who Levi is. There's another group here that we need to understand a little bit about to understand this story a little more. That's the Pharisees. So, this is the first time in the book of Mark that we see the Pharisees mentioned. You'll see them throughout the rest of the Gospels and throughout the the rest of Mark. So who are these Pharisees, these scribes who are also Pharisees? Well, Pharisees are basically just a political party, but not just a normal political party. They're a conservative, religious political party. Instead of having a constitution that their political party stands on, they have the law of Moses that they stand on, and a strict adherence to that law is how they present themselves as righteous before God. Now, prior to Jesus coming on the scene, these men were looked at as the models of what godly people were supposed to look like. They were respected and held in high esteem in their community. But here comes Jesus preaching and teaching something different. And if we're being honest, he's stealing their thunder a little bit, and they don't like it. Because they're the standard by which people should live by. So they start to watch Jesus. They start to follow him around, see what he's saying, see what he's preaching, see what he's teaching. And they, somehow or another, we don't know all the details of it, they see this scene at Levi's house of Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now for these guys seeing that, that was unthinkable that a rabbi, a teacher, even one that maybe they don't quite agree with, would be eating with sinners and tax collectors and defiling himself in such a manner. That's why we see that these Pharisees pull aside some of Jesus' disciples and say, what is he doing? What is your rabbi doing? Here's the beauty of Jesus, is he was always right where he needed to be. And what we start to see In Mark chapter two is the purpose of the king being revealed. That's the truth, that Jesus came to rescue sinners. And if he's going to rescue sinners, he has to be where sinners are. Now, picture, if you will, a house on fire. A big house with a big fire, it's bad. And there's people trapped inside. Now, a firefighter shows up on the scene has all of his gear, his fire-retarded suit, his respirator, his ax, but he just stands outside watching and waiting for the people to walk out on their own. Maybe he yells some instructions to them about how they can save themselves, but he just stands there and doesn't do anything about it. That would be crazy if you saw that, right? If you came upon that scene and you saw that, that would be crazy. We would say the firefighter is not fulfilling his purpose. You see, the firefighter has to go into the fire where the people are in order to rescue them from death. And that's the amazing purpose of Jesus, is that he walks into the fire to save sinners from death. And we see that in action as he's reclining at a table full of them. And the world would say, don't go there because you're gonna get burnt. You're gonna get dirty. You're gonna spoil your reputation if you go there. And Jesus says, no, that's where I need to be. But what does that look like for us If, if we are disciples of Christ, people who are trying to emulate Christ, to become like Christ, shouldn't we find ourselves from time to time in the fire? Shouldn't we find ourselves surrounded by broke and lost people who need a savior? Because we are the vessel that can take Christ to the tax collectors and to the sinners of today. And there's a reason that we push community so much here at Mercy Hill that we want you to be involved in our MCs, in our communities. And it's not that we want you to grow your MC so that we can grow our church. It's because we want you to take Christ to your communities, to those people who are on the outside looking in and invite them to the table. There are so many who need to sit at the table with Jesus. But maybe they're just waiting for us to invite them. But here's the reason behind all of this why Jesus go, goes to sinners. It's because he's the only one who can truly deal with sin. Jesus is the only one who can truly deal with sin. Let's look at the last verse, verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, again, we don't quite know the context. If this is like they interrupted the dinner party, if this takes place a little bit later, but somehow or another, the disciples get word that the Pharisees are questioning what he's doing. The word gets back to Jesus. And so he answers them. He answers them with a a proverb. He says, It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I don't know about you, if you're familiar with the Gospels and with the Pharisees, I I love every interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, because he like makes them eat their words really quick, right? But they just keep on coming back for more, and he just keeps turning it right back on them. And what he's doing here, he's calling out their hypocrisy, because their religiosity or their piety doesn't make them righteous, they are, just in, they are just as much in need as the tax collector and sinner for spiritual healing. But they've become so lost in their self-righteousness that they have missed the point of the scriptures that they know so well. They're experts in the law. They're experts in the Bible, but they've missed the point. I love how Dr. Akin puts it this way. He says, in essence, Jesus says, to those who think they are righteous, I have nothing to say. But to those who know they are sinners in need of salvation, I have come to heal them and call them to myself. Now, here's the tricky part in us navigating this, right? Like, do we even recognize our own need? Do we recognize that we're in the fire? See, the world would tell us today that it's okay to be a little self righteous, it's okay. In fact, what the world teaches us today is it's this weird, ridiculous kind of dichotomy that we're fed, and it's first that we're fed that we're perfect just the way we are, that we're good enough just the way we are, that we just need to find our true self and celebrate it. Well, I don't know where you are and what you believe today, but I'm going to tell you, that's a lie. You are not perfect the way you are. None of us are. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. But we're fed this lie that we're perfect just the way we are, But then they feed us another lie that's competing with the first lie that they're telling us. And the second lie is that we're not perfect, that we need to do X, Y, and Z to become perfect. That if we look a certain way, act a certain way, eat a certain way, find the perfect job, make more money, do this, do that, that then we'll be perfect. But it's all lies. We're not perfect, and there's nothing we can do to be perfect. But we're being fed these magic solutions to our problems, and we don't even understand what the problem is. And then, when the solution doesn't work, then we're more broken than ever. It's sin. The problem is sin. We're all sinners, we're all tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is the only one capable of dealing with it. Turning to the world to solve the brokenness inside of us is like putting duct tape on a dam. It might hold for a second, but it's going to start leaking, and it's going to burst again. It's like going to a podiatrist when you need a heart doctor. You know, he might know medicine. He might be able to give you some advice, but he's not going to help you in the long run if you need a heart doctor. Worldly, pro- worldly fixes aren't going to solve our sin problem. And we're getting fed all this self-help, self-improvement nonsense, and it's just Feeds into our self righteousness, it pulls us further and further away from God. We don't need to get in touch with ourselves, we need to get in touch with God. We don't need to learn how to self talk, we need to learn how to talk to God. We don't need to find our true self, we need to find our spiritual self. We don't need self discipline, we need spiritual discipline. We don't need what the world has, we need what God has. And that's what Jesus has come to do. That's what he's doing at Levi's house. He comes to sit at the table with sinners. He comes to show us a better way. It's a way filled with grace, with peace, hope, love, kindness, compassion, gentleness. And it's not just a way to solve our problems and our hurts and pains here on earth, it's a way that leads us to eternity with him. Because in the end, in the eyes of God, we all have terrible reputations, except for one, Jesus. He's the one who steps into our mess, who steps into the fire to extend saving grace. Now, as I was all sitting yesterday, actually, trying to figure out a clever way to close out this message for you guys. And typically, if you go to seminary or you've been preaching for a while, you're, you're taught that you need to give the people some kind of application, right? What is the text telling us to do? What can they take home that they can put into practice in their lives so that this text has an effect on them? So I was sitting at my desk yesterday kind of wrestling with this, like what am I gonna tell the people to do with this text? And I was stumped. I didn't know what to tell you guys. So then I sit there and like, well, what do I need to do with this text? That Jesus comes to the table to sit with sinners. That he comes to rescue sinners. How do I respond to this? I didn't know how to respond. It was overwhelming. How do I respond? How do we respond to the God who keeps running into the fire for us over and over and over again? He keeps coming after me when in light of his holiness, his reputation, my reputation is garbage. It's trash. This is, it was overwhelming for me to think this. And the hard part is, is that I'm the one who keeps setting the fires that he has to keep coming and rescuing me from over and over and over again. I'm the one who's sinning, setting these fires in my life. And God keeps coming back over and over and pulling me out. When I don't deserve it. When you don't deserve it. But it's because that's who He is. And that's how much He loves you, how much He loves me, how much He loves the world. So as I said, Prayed and thought, and was overwhelmed by the love of God in my life, by the love of Jesus in my life. I came to the conclusion that I don't have some practical, helpful step for you to take away from this. But what I do have is life changing. It's just Jesus. Come to Jesus and then keep coming back to Jesus. Every moment, every day, you keep coming back to him. And here's the amazing thing, it's easy because he already came for us. He already came to the table for us. He already ran into the fire for us. So for us to come to him is just simply recognizing that he's already there that he came to save us, that we recognize the king and his purpose and humble ourselves before him. Jesus is sitting at a table of sinners just waiting on us to recognize him. And that's what I have for you today. Just go to Jesus. If you've never been to Jesus, go to him for the first time. If you've been following him for your whole life, keep going back to Jesus. Jesus because that's his purpose. His purpose is to rescue sinners, to rescue us. And we're all still sinners while we're on this earth. And we need the only one who can handle our sin. All right. I want to leave you guys one more quote from Gentle and Lowly. And I hope you guys will grab the book. I hope you guys will read it. Uh, Because I I think it's really life-changing. But he says in the book, Dane Orton, Ortland. He says, the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgive those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. I don't know what your desire is today, but my desire is for Jesus every moment every minute every second because i can't do it on my own cuz my i have a terrible reputation i'm in the fire i need jesus let's pray